the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. American prosperity is the bedrock of freedom and security all over the world. An obligation to the heritage of liberty and dignity handed down to us by our forefathers. It's time for the Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Well, what an interesting time up in Iowa. Uh, The Iowa caucuses are completed. Um, Donald Trump romped. uh, Over 50% of the caucus goers voted for Donald Trump. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy underperformed and it dropped out, actually, and said he's endorsing Donald Trump. And both Nikki Haley and uh, and Ron DeSantis, who got 20% each about, uh, are saying they're in it for the long haul. We'll see about that. Um, But we'll get to that in a minute. What you need to know and all that. Welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And um, it's a very interesting uh, week right after the caucuses. Donald Trump had to go off to New York. He's in court again. A different case. uh, This one by that Gene Carroll lady suing him for some alleged impropriety 30 years ago that is way past the statute of limitations. But she bought she brought a civil suit in New York courts, uh, courts that are uh, antithetical and hostile to uh, Donald Trump. And so by bringing the cases there, um, she has a chance to uh, uh, make his life miserable. What I think this is the case that's funded by Reed Hoffman, the multi gazillionaire uh, LinkedIn founder who is also a leftist uh, left leaning uh, political supporter, including, by the way, Nikki Haley gave her a bunch of money to her super PAC or her regular campaign. So um, Donald Trump off to court, you know, lawfare continuing on and on and on. We've got an interview with Mike Davis. I just recorded it because he's in uh, between uh, travels. I'm not sure if we'll use it on this show or uh, maybe tomorrow, but uh, we'll get to that. And a lot of other stuff going on. But um, so let's talk about Iowa and the results. You know, I am still here's the number one takeaway. What you need to know is Iowa and the result by Trump is an indication of a big league campaign. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's always easy to be the the incumbent and whether you like it or not, it's in some ways Donald Trump is a sort of non-incumbent incumbent, right? He's got 100 percent name ID. He people have already voted for him in these caucuses, et cetera, et cetera. But to get from where he was eight years ago, there wasn't really a caucus in uh, 2020. Um, eight years ago in, tw- in 2016, Donald Trump didn't win the caucuses. And so he's gone from whatever number he got in the, in the low 20s, maybe teens, up to 51, 52 percent. It's a, it means he's got a real campaign, a systematic campaign, because he wasn't even in Iowa that much uh, compared to Vivek or even Ron DeSantis. And yet the details coming out of Iowa of how well run the campaign was, I, I saw the text of the template that caucus captains 
So the caucus captains for each of the campaigns gets up at a caucus. Let's say you go to a caucus that's in the firehouse. And in Iowa, you go to the firehouse at uh, 7 o'clock, the caucus starts, and someone for Trump gets up and walks to the center of the room and says, I'm for Trump, here's why. And then he finishes, I don't know if it's 5 or 10 minutes, and then he finishes it. When that person finishes, somebody, DeSantis, has a caucus captain. He comes out and says, I'm for DeSantis. And then Nikki Haley has a caucus captain, and she comes out and says, Baba Vivek. And in this case, I think there were four. There might have in a couple places been a fifth if Asa Hutchison still is in the race or whatever. So that's the system. Donald Trump's caucus captains had a template speech that hit all the right buttons. It was prepared in advance and circulated to the member to the uh, caucus captains across the country, across the state of Iowa. And he won 98 out of 99 uh, counties. Donald Trump did a resounding victory. Nobody's ever done that. Now, it's a little deceptive because every time you have an incumbent, he wins, you know, 100 percent, you know, whether Bill Clinton's second term, uh, Obama's second term, you know, Donald Trump's second term, his second run. This being this third, it's kind of a hybrid. But still, my point is the takeaway from uh, Iowa caucus is the Trump campaign. If you could criticize the Trump campaign in 2020, You could do it by saying they didn't seem to be broadly serious, running a broad and deep campaign. They seem to be just a personality driven campaign, which kind of worked in 2016, but didn't work in 2020. You could also blame that on COVID, by the way. COVID made it impossible for the campaign to really run the way it could have. And therefore, you know, when when you were done, uh, you watch the irregularities in the in the election cycle, you know, mail in ballots and drop boxes and all. But be that as it may. When you see somebody get 51, 52 percent in Iowa caucus, in the Iowa caucuses like Trump did, this is a seriously organized campaign. It's not just the money, although he's got lots of money. It's also knowing what to do with the money, knowing how to build out the right guys and gals, the right people. And it's a very successful opening uh, salvo in the 2024 campaign that's one of the things about this cycle that's shaping up in trump's favor because he has had to run this primary and even though he's way ahead he still had to go through it it gives him attention it gets him better it gets his team better i don't think iowa iowa was up for grabs in 2024, I think it's a Republican state, especially in presidential years. You know, the governor, the uh, uh, governor Branstead was there for years and now Governor Kim Reynolds. I mean, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty solidly red state. So I don't think yet. But if there was ever any doubt, Iowa's Trump country. And so you start to see a campaign that is skilled and now in practice. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. You get better by doing something over and over again. Now, another other takeaway from Iowa is Vivek Ramaswamy has impeccable, impeccable timing. He has impeccable judgment and timing. He lost. He could have complained about how he lost. He could have railed against the fact that he was never included in the list of candidates. You know, all these cheap shots that they did do against him. And he came in fourth, seven or eight percent. And instead of being a complainer and having his his last images being a guy giving a speech where he says, this is a broken system and all that, he's got a huge smile. He's thanking everybody. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be the guy, but I know who is going to be. It's going to be Trump. And I'm totally for him. Smiling, laughing, joyful, smart. There's nobody who came out of this with a higher 
shift, a bigger shift from zero to whatever you want to call it, 75 miles an hour. Unbelievable. He was a zero. He was nothing. And he didn't succeed in any conventional measurement in terms of caucus goers or anything, but he succeeded in becoming a a leader in becoming a few and his timing and his judgment are impeccable how he did that nikki haley was up there saying this is a two-man race you know it's me and trump and everybody on desantis's team is like what you came in third nikki i mean barely third by a half a point or a point but it's just so insulting and so what you have is nikki haley is gaining hate from the desantis people from others and vivek ramaswamy is just saying hey i know what time it is i know where i am i'm moving i'm moving this way and i'm done I think, actually, the guy who benefited, other than Vivek, I think DeSantis has the most interesting. You, you, you have to have an argument now that Trump is the nominee unless something happens. You know, Trump is the nominee unless something, uh, you know, dramatic goes down. Trump gets sick. Trump gets assassinated, whatever it is. But the fact is. The uh, the fact is. That DeSantis is, is treading water more than I thought he'd be. I actually thought he would do worse. I thought he would do worse and the pressure would be to quit, but I don't know how Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis continue for, you know, they're going to have to spend millions of dollars. They're going to have to up their spending of millions and millions of dollars, and they can see that they're going broke. And you can see that you're going to run out of money. So now it's a strategy of how do you end well? See, Vivek Ramaswamy ended well. He figured out how to end in a way that gives him more upside than down. And that's the um, that's the thing that uh, is very difficult to see how DeSantis and uh, and uh, uh, Nikki Haley do. How do you finish well? How do you finish where you're not really making enemies? It's going to be up for grabs. All right. Last thing on Iowa. I I don't know how the you know, if you watch the television shows, I only jumped in and out of them. CNN, MSNBC. They were on a rampage because they basically said Iowa shouldn't be allowed to pick. Iowa's too conservative. Iowa's too evangelical. Iowa's too white. All this stuff. They shouldn't be. There's going to be a lot of pressure to try to push Iowa out as the first in the country, these caucuses. And the Democrats have already done that. And some of the Republicans will start to do that based on the fact that Trump carried the day instead of the people with the muscle and the money. See, the usual play in Iowa is if you've got the money and the establishment muscle, you can win. Romney, uh, McCain, of course, Ted Cruz won, but you can do well enough that you hold your own and they're getting sick of it. The establishment is saying, you know what? We're sick of having to compete in a place where we don't we don't really believe in these uh, values of these people. And I think there's going to be a lot of pressure. I will not be surprised. Trump will defend Iowa, especially if he's president. But I would not be surprised if Iowa doesn't have a tough time holding on to its spot as first in the nation. So there you have it. There's a little wrap up on Iowa. Uh, That's what you need to know. Uh, Thank you, as always, uh, for uh, signing up for the Daily Wink. Uh, Go to phyllisschlafly.com and sign up there, phyllisschlafly.com. And also, if you go over to Substack, uh, you can uh, sign up there and get my uh, longer form writing. I'm working on a piece there about the crown jewels of America. The crown jewels of America, of course, the rule of law, constitution and rule of law, and uh, uh, we the people, uh, we the people and how our values fit together. So you can read about that there. All right, we'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you in a moment.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And our next guest, I just had a wonderful, I, I always say this to our, our listeners, our next guest is M.K. Sweeney. What I say to them is I have these great conversations with people off the air that I don't record that we should just turn things on and have them on. So M.K. Sweeney is the author. Her book is called The Magi of Miriam, The Boy Who Saved the Kingdom. Uh, she herself lived all over the world and but grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. She is a lawyer, among other things, which means she knows how to read and write, uh, generally knows how to read and write well and which is why she's able to also be uh, a uh, a writer in the books like this and you can find her website which is the website for the book is magiofmiriam.com so welcome mk sweeney how are you yeah, thank you, Ed. I'm well. Thanks for the nice introduction. Great to be on your show. Well, it's good to be on your sh- on with you. I, here's here's one question. I started to cover it with you off the air, but I think people care about it. You've got a busy life, career, husband, kids, and you're writing. And on your bio, it says, in the wee hours of the morning, you'll catch her writing. Being serious, you just had a story you wanted to tell, this Magi of Miriam. And first... You had to get it out, right? And it's not easy to do. I mean, I, I can't do this without my wife probably emerging from the shadows to, to give me a swat. But, you know, you had three children. Childbirth is supposed to be bad. I, I've written. Writing is really bad. It's probably just as hard. I'm, that's what I mean, my wife. Would, but, I mean, how would you get this story out of you? I mean, what 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 is it that made you have to do it? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, as you mentioned, we have three young children, my husband and I, and mm-hmm. I was having a lot of trouble finding literature that I felt comfortable giving to them that I thought was worthwhile to read. So that was part of it. Another part was I felt pretty spiritually driven to write this book. Mm-hmm. This is a glorification of God series, and it's told in a very action-packed, fast-moving adventure way with a lot of humor. But the crux of it is a glorification of God book. If the reader comes away wondering what would a relationship with God look like for me and comes away with a little bit more moral grounding and maybe overcomes some insecurities and sense of self, then I will have done a really good job with this book. And it was something, you know, that I would want my kids to read. And and I figured some other families might be well suited with it too. We, uh, we're talking with M.K. Sweeney, the author, and the uh, the book is um, out everywhere you get books. I'm looking uh, on um, Amazon, other places. The Magic of Miriam, uh, you can buy it directly from uh, the Magic Magi, excuse me, of Miriam uh, dot com. So the the story, Jesse Walker is the boy at the center of the story, and he goes through as a lot of times, you know, ch- these kinds of stories a lot. And does are you writing out of your own experience when you do this kind of thing? Are you? It may not be specific, but is is that where you get this or are you writing out of observations or is it just your imagination? Yeah. So it's a great question. And I think in general authors, all authors, including fiction sort of draw different aspects of themselves and people they come across um, cross paths with and, and things that they've experienced. So in that sense, Ed, yes, I'm writing from some level of experience. Now, this is a very fantastic story with creatures that, you know, there's another world and things of that nature. Right. So this is definitely not something that I personally have <laughs> or anyone that I know of has experienced, except that I think that everyone and kids especially have a lot of insecurities that that they have to kind of break through and adults too. And I would say some of the theological layers in the story speak to adults for this series. But I think that while this story is made up, there's emotions and things that we all feel that are interwoven into this this series. 
I would talk again with M.K. Sweeney about her book, The Magi of Miriam, the boy who saved the kingdom. You know, one of the way, reasons that uh, you came to my attention is I got an email from one of your colleagues working saying, you know, how the woke stories um, and how crazy the wokeness is. Uh, and you mentioned that's partly when you started with your children to you find things for them to read. You know, again, you're an observer both now as a mom with children coming of age or, you know, coming up into reading and everything else. How how bad is the woke problem? And when I say that, I mean, you know, you're also a successful, you know, attorney having you know go through law schools. Not simple. You've been around a lot of people. How big a problem is this woke education, what it's done to us? Yeah. I mean, I think that in contemporary times in schools, you see some of these school systems and they're pressing on like transgender issues and things like that. It seems really bizarre, right? For young kids um, and such a hyper focus on sexuality, it, I find to be extremely unusual. Some of the other stuff going on in the schools seems quite odd. But and I think that all of that kind of messaging and hyper focus is very transient. Like the wokeism has not been around that long, right? Right. So it doesn't really have that much to do with this particular series, except right. that this is a traditional series, right? Glorification of God, C.S. Lewis type story. And I did pitch this to the publishers, um, like C.S. Lewis meets Hunger Games, right? They're like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You know, right. but so there's that kind of traditional classic, you know, good writing series. It, and it just feels cutting edge because it's against this social landscape and backdrop of wokeism. So you, this is a story that typically would have been in circulation, right? Like these glorification right. of God, moral mm -hmm. compass overcoming insecurities, tapping into your inner strength, all of that stuff, it traditionally has been in children's literature. It just sort of in contemporary times has fallen out of place a little. And then setting aside all the wokeism, a lot of the series that were available for my kids that I was finding just felt really dumbed down. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to call out any series, but I feel like I'm getting stupider <laughs> as I read them with my kids. <laughs> well, you know, I've got to tell you that I, I, I'm going to get myself I think I'll in trouble, but the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and all those, when you go back and study how they did it, the writers, there was a couple, Edward uh, Slatterbecks, or I've got to say his name, basically created the whole series and paid people to write the books and they they got dumber and dumber in the sense that they became just formulaic outlines right that they were yeah. just the same things the only good thing about the hardy boys was he had rules you weren't allowed to have drugs you weren't allowed to have murder it had to be all this kind of you know soft crime and at least that part of it was good but, but, but one second on this um oh, oh by the way i have to tease you um on the on the amazon site we get the book and again the book is the magi of miriam by mk sweeney who's our guest there's incredible there's a, a quote from charles scribner the third which i'm like oh scribner this is like the publishing thing that's big Richard H. Amberg Jr., and he's got a huge lengthy quote, and he's somebody prominent. And then the best one is Vivian, Vivian Woodrum, fifth grader, Atlanta, Georgia. I love everything about this book. That's the best one right there. I, mean, I know you know that. That's, I'm sure that's why it's yeah. included. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. But yeah. but back to how many will this be? And and by the way, when I just told you about the Hardy Boys thing, one of the things that Edward Shatterback, or however you say his name, did was he always did a series. It was always at least three. Even when they didn't take off, you know, Hardy Boys ended up being 50, Nancy Drew 50 or whatever. But they, he'd do three no matter what, because he wanted to see if he could get people ready for it. How many will this series be? 
So it's funny that you bring up the three. I envision it too as a trilogy. I do. And part of that whole series idea for a writer, you have to spend so much of the first book introducing the characters. And especially if there's an alternate world, like doing the world building. Um, So a lot of time and energy is spent on that. And you still have to make it fun for the reader, right? Like you Mm -hmm. want them to get engaged. So a lot of that is the emotional engagement of the reader and the characters, and that takes some time. So that's your first book, book typically. And then for the story to develop, you sort of need, unless you're going to write like a 2,000-page book, you sort of need to break it up into a series. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. M.K. Sweeney, again, the website for her book is magiofmiriam.com, and the book is uh, The Kingdom. Uh, the Boy Who Saved the Kingdom is the uh, subtitle. Uh, available everywhere you get books about Jesse Walker, 12-year-old boy, and good and evil is really uh, clever thank you for taking the time to be with us and for writing and being out there and getting up at the wee hours of the morning oh let me ask you what's the next of the trilogy what's the next like what's the tell, preview and i know they always tell you to tell the the next one what's the next one and how when do you think you'll be done this spoiler alert <laughs> yeah so the, the next book in the series i would like to name the magi of miriam and the three-headed beast and okay. there's this kind of it will be get a little bit more uh with biblical undertones um, than the first in the series. Frankly, the first in the series is very light on doctrine, like hardly at all. But what I would like to do, if my publisher and everybody else kind of (laughs) is on board, is delve into it a little bit more. And I do, Ed, before I go, I want to say the Audible for this book is out, and it's fantastic. It's super engaging. I don't read it. Somebody with a fantastic voice does. He's got like Johnny Depp voice where he can change it and make the characters really come alive. So it's really fun for long car rides with or without kids or doing work around oh, the house good. or something like that. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I love Audible and I'll, that's why I'll go, I'll go I think I'll go on Audible. I, I've got whatever plan I have on Audible, I get a lot of uh, they give me credits and I can pick up one so I'll do that with yours. I, I mean I should buy it but I'll just tell you that up front. But uh, Alright, I gotta run. I'm up against the break. MK Sweeney, right. thank you for the time uh, and thank you for being out there uh, and uh, engaging like this. The Magic of Miriam, The Boy Who Saved the Kingdom available anywhere you get books. We gotta take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Again, again, every time I have these great conversations with uh, my guests before we get on the air. Her name is Catherine Ruth Pakalik, and she is, well, she's a mother of eight, so that's exhausting already. She's uh, a PhD. She's she's a, a social scientist. She's an author. Her newest book is out in just a few months. It's called Hannah's Children, The Women Quietly Defying the Birth Dearth. And she also teaches at Catholic University of America. So she's a busy, busy woman, although as the late Phyllis Schlafly used to say if you want to make um if you want to get something done ask a busy person to do it so welcome uh, to you professor how are you thanks so much Ed. i'm doing great yep. so first of all this this book hannah's children you interviewed i think it was 50 plus college educated women who are raising large families five or more children what's your thought behind you know you could have done three or more children you could have done not college educated i mean maybe the future is to do to cross over what was yeah. your focus on this and why uh, great question. So I had limited resources. I wanted to go out and get a picture of what it would look like 
uh, what it does look like to do something different. We know that kind of the mainstream household has, you know, two or fewer children these days, um, and that's a statistical average. We know that falling birth rates are a huge problem for us and for the rest of the West. They represent so many things that are worrisome, right? Besides sort of economic things, they represent like a loss of hope and a loss of, you know, excitement about the future. And so I thought, hey, look, there are these people all over the country, all over the world, really, that are doing something different. And nobody's thought about asking them, what they're like and why they do this and and could what they do be emulated could it be copied by other people so nobody's studied this population why did i look at five or more why not three or more yeah. that was just efficiency from my perspective if you go out and sample a bunch of three or more families yeah. you may or may not get something interesting right i, I said i've got limited resources let's go for the gold let's get people who really look different and find out what's going on did you now again coming from your background? You've you've you know again we're talking with uh, Professor Catherine uh, Pakalik and she's over at Catholic University of America. She's also the author of a new book coming out in a couple of months. Hannah's Children: uh, The Women Quietly Defying the Birth Dearth uh, from Regnery uh, Publishing. You've been around communities that have had you know eight children yourself. You've been around communities, so you you, you probably thought you knew some of what was going on, like your own your own faith journey, your you and your right. husband's uh, sense of what family was. But what what surprised you? That's right. So I think what surprised me the most was how common um, across the different faiths, right, as my own tradition is Catholic, but across the faiths I talked to, 99% of my sample said that the re- their motives, their reasoning for being open to having uh, large families came from biblical faith. But how hmm. common across evangelicals, Baptists, Lutherans, Catholics, Mormons, Jewish women in this country, how common a certain worldview was amongst them. Women, you know, Mormon women on the on the West Coast and Jewish women on the East Coast would speak about the providence of God in taking care of their children, blessing them with children in mm. terms that were so similar that I thought this is this is amazing. This is worth talking about, which is why the character of the biblical Hannah sort of takes the lead as a kind of type for what I'm describing early on, because I started to listen and I thought this is so biblical. This is really it interesting mm-hmm. so yeah that's that was the reason do you think when you look again again you're you're this is your we're, we're um we're talking again with a, a woman who's a, a research uh you know professor uh catherine uh Pakalica at catholic university of america and other universities is you know you've been looking at this and 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 when you see the world right you see places like poland incentivizing hungary incentivizing having children in america um there is some things right there's some child tax credits there's some incentivization sent that's the wrong phrase but you know incentives yeah. yep. for marriage but are you and then you and then you run into a lot of the communities that would be large families that often homeschool or do classical schools. And the last thing they want is the government involved. And, yeah. and meaning don't don't give us a curriculum. Don't give us a voucher because we don't want to have to be tied to you on the on the question of, say, incentivizing larger families. I mean, I'm sure you've done. Everyone does this to yeah. you. You and Elon Musk are writing about this a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, is there how do you feel about that? And how does the social yeah. science work on whether it can really change behavior in a way that's uh, not to say it's not positive to have a big family, but if you're only doing it because of incentives, maybe that's not enough. I don't know. You see my point? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, this is a tough one, right? If I say incentives don't work, uh, people say, oh, you're <laughs> against, you're against helping families. No, right. actually you're not against helping. I think we make a distinction in terms of uh, policy related to like child tax credits, which I do support distinction between incentivizing people having more children and 
honoring the sacrifices they're making, like a society that's oriented towards family and towards children, honor those sacrifices, you know, a, a tax credit, it is a sense just, you know, giving something back to families in a sense that's, that's, you can see that as a smaller government sort of approach, right, to give money back to families. But it, the, the social sciences settled, at least the, the record for the past 40 to 50 years is that cash incentives, transfers of different types don't raise the birth rate appreciably. So they might be a good idea, as I, as I said, like if you if you if you took the view that basically like the government should do everything in its power. Um, now, that's a view I don't take for a couple of reasons and I need to right. be specific. But if you took that view, I mean, you could take the view the government should do everything it can to help families. I don't think that project is going to raise birth rates meaningfully. It might do mm. other good things. It might, you know, might. I haven't looked at whether it helps marriage, but it isn't going to raise the birth rate. I see. Yeah, um, that's I, I get, that's, that's yeah. the history of the science on that. Catherine uh, Ruth yeah. Pakalik is our guest, and she's a uh, uh, the author of a new book, Hannah's Children, The Women Quietly Defying the Birth Dearth. And uh, she's a pre- professor over at Catholic University of America, a social scientist on... So uh, it, what do you recommend? I mean, the, the, if the women that are quietly yeah. defying the birth dearth, and there's men involved, of course, uh, to, yes. to defy yes. that, then yep. is, is it, is it, I mean, are you, do you end up at the end of this saying the best hope is faith communities? I mean, it, yeah. it probably is, but is that yes. is something that, I don't know, public policy can I, Well, work? yeah, I mean, it's certainly a policy to take the view that you should really uh, think a lot harder about what we would call religious liberty in this country. But our our view of religious liberty is really thin and kind of pathetic, right? Like our view is sort of, well, well, it's, you know, people have a right to go worship and they can and they have access to religious communities and nobody's telling them they can't go to church on Sunday. But if you look more broadly at what the job of church is, traditionally is what 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 is the job of the people of god it's to meet people's spiritual and uh, material needs in you know acts of mercy we can say the corporal and spiritual works of mercy and huge among this taking care of the sick taking care of the poor and educating young people well that has become the job of the government that's right. the job. so i view this as a very drastic crowding out of the work of the people of god so when i say religion or when i say communities of faith i i mean taking a really hard look at the way in which the government is currently actively making it more difficult for communities of faith to shape people's values. First place you shape people's values is when they're in school as kids, right? Uh-huh. So with 90, 90% plus of American school children in a public school, I mean, do we have a fighting chance to shape the values around <laughs> right. the Bible, right? I mean, I think right. not. I think Right. Not. Uh, yeah. um, so how about, I, I know we got a couple minutes left again, Catherine yeah. uh, Pakalik is our guest. She's a professor and the author of Hannah's Children, The Women Quietly Defying the Birth Dearth. It does strike me that when you have prominent leaders talk about the issue, it does change the perception. And this is not perfect because I'm not a, yeah. uh, I'm not a scientist, a social scientist. I'm not even a historian, although I think most historians have been lying to us, but that's a different problem. <laughs> the March of Dimes, for example, I think it was Roosevelt, uh, FDR, who said, we're going to have the March of Dimes, we're going to get rid of polio maybe, and, and, and it became this identifiable thing, we're going to do it, right? Elon Musk talking, you know, joking about how we have a population problem. In the 1970s, Phyllis Schlafly wrote about some of the key uh, lunatics who were, you know, the population bomb, and they became popularized in such a way that people believed it. Is there a a part of you that says we need some more leaders who are popularizing the notion that you have to have more children? Yes, 100 percent. Like a a sort of a a sub portion of this project is actually about me trying to do that, trying to model that, trying to give people stuff they can use to talk about this. 
one of the problems is our, if our political leaders, those who are pro-family or see this problem in, in Washington and around the country, if they don't have access to the kinds of things that can be meaningfully helpful to people, what are they going to talk about? You know, like three three right. case studies about, you know, tiny, tiny <laughs> changes to the tax system. And I'm right. like, look, that's good. But actually what what I can hand you is something a lot more valuable, which is like the yeah. testimony of people. Right. I really do think when we think about Christian history, how do people change in ways that make them ready to to basically self-sacrifice? Well, they, yep. they, they make that change because they see the witness of other people and they go, you know what? Gosh, darn it. I, mean, I, I can do that about jumping yeah. into the Coliseum with the lions today, but like, <laughs> that's really heroic. Like uh, count me in. That's <laughs> true. It's true. Having a child is like jumping into the Coliseum. I agree completely. I I'm not, <laughs> anyway. All right. Unfortunately, speaking of uh Coliseum, I have producers yeah. that will yell at me. I'm against a heartbreak. And so I have to go uh, and say, thank you. We're going to have her back on. Her name is Catherine Pakalik. She's the author of Hannah's children, the women quietly defying the birth dirt. The book comes out in a couple months. We'll have her back on again. We've got to go to a break though. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, the conservative pro-family broadcast of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a leading voice for the sanctity of life, traditional education, the Constitution, and American sovereignty. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Betty Friedan is remembered in American history as a titan of 20th century feminism. She published The Feminine Mystique in 1963, presenting herself as a simple housewife wishing to be liberated from the supposed patriarchy. However, a friend of Friedan named David Horowitz began to suspect that her political experience may have gone beyond being just a feminist sympathizing housewife. Horowitz began to suspect that Friedan may have had experience in American communism after noticing her use of communist community organizing skills during her professorship at the University of Southern California in the 1980s. After some digging, Horowitz discovered that Friedan had taken courses on socialism as a student, was investigated by the FBI for alleged communist ties in the 1950s, and had published articles in labor newspapers under her maiden name, while also participating in rent protests. Carrie Gress, the author of the anti-feminist book The End of Woman, goes through Friedan's political involvement before becoming a feminist icon. Gress states that there was little about her life that was not somehow intertwined with communist or progressive politics. Friedan even wrote that women were trapped by capitalism because they wielded 75% of the purchasing power in America. Women were spending too much money, and communists were concerned that this was too empowering for capitalism. Betty Friedan's feminist writings and advocacy were part of a larger project for communist control. 20th century American communism sought to win the hearts and minds of American women for their cause by appealing to the manufactured feminist discontent. Friedan is evidence that communism and feminism go hand in hand. And that liberation from the patriarchy comes packaged together with liberation from capitalism. Friedan's hiding of this fact indicates the pernicious and dishonest nature of communism, desperate to infect and tear apart the American family. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. It's no secret that globalists are bent on destroying Western culture. Whether the threat comes from inside or outside our borders, America must be protected from cultural Marxism and those who would deny American sovereignty. We're seeking your insight at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. And join us again 
for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. As we're sort of uh, finishing up on uh, segment four, we call it internally amongst the the guys, our producers, uh, segment four, it's a shorter segment. Let me uh, preview for you something I've been working on. I have been working on uh, identifying in both layman's terms as well as in legal terms, uh, the problems around due process in this country. And I have been, and you've heard some of the interviews, I've been interviewing some key people. Mike Davis is going to be an upcoming interview, uh, Jeff Clark, uh, Catherine Engelbrecht, John Schlafly, people that I think, some of them are lawyers, uh, obviously Jeff Clark is, uh, John Schlafly is, some are not, Catherine Engelbrecht, but Catherine Engelbrecht has been participating in the legal system for about 15 years uh, as being targeted by the IRS and on and on and on. But my goal in this is to lay out a real understandable description of due process, American due process, and what we are demanding about it. So, I, for example, I just did an interview with a um, uh, with a reporter, a print reporter. So he was he was taking down notes, and and we were talking about what could you do to improve uh, due process for January six defendants. And one of the things about due process is what's called an impartial tribunal that you talk about that you have a the impartial tribunal, meaning that the the court or the hearing uh, that you're in is an impartial tribunal, usually a courthouse, right? Usually a courtroom. But sometimes when they talk about it esoterically in terms of theoretically, you could say a tribunal. It could be a hearing, uh, you know, a hearing um, uh, administrative hearing. It could be a, uh, some other term, but basically impartial means it doesn't mean that people don't have biases and don't have, uh, you know, issues coming into it, but it means that the system is set up where they're going to be able to judge what's happening based on the law and the facts, not based on some other aspect of their humanness, biases, letting their bias override them, letting corruption override them, whatever it would be. It doesn't seem to me that the Washington, D.C. federal court is any longer can be called a, an, an impartial tribunal. It seems broken. The system that's supposed to have judges who police it, uh, participants, both defense, defense, defense lawyers and prosecutors who uh, participate in the system honorably. And then the Constitution and rule of law overriding things doesn't seem like it's working. And so, for example, when you think about what due process should be, what due process should be, um, you you need to f- figure out how to improve or or recover that aspect of it. Another example, by the way, due process. Due process includes the idea that you have the right to defend yourself. Now, it's been extended to say you have a right to counsel. You know, right to your, you have a right to law. You you, you have the right to uh, uh, remain silent. You have the right to a counsel. These kinds of things. Uh, right to remain silent is uh, is according to the Bill of Rights. You know, the the uh, you plead the fifth. You you cite the Fifth Amendment, saying you you are not required to incriminate yourself. Similarly, due process requires, in the sense of the system working, that you have a counsel and that the counsel be able to give you advice. You can represent yourself, but you have to be aided in such a way to understand the law and the process and everything else. And if you do represent yourself, you have to be given some leeway because you're not a professional. That's been the tradition. Now we have a tradition where 
it's very difficult to get the best lawyers, the sharpest people, the toughest uh, uh, advocates to represent you. If you're a conservative or a a Trump leaning or anything else, because look what happened and what happened after the 2020 election. There was a a multi-million dollar project, Project 65, which aimed at the lawyers who assisted in challenging the 2020 election. It, now, the allegations against some, sometimes there's bar complaints. There's at least in one case in Georgia, uh, a legal, uh, you know, criminal complaint participating in some racketeering thing. It's crazy. To me, it's crazy. Seeing it on the, seeing the pleadings on their face, you know, reading the, the allegations and all, it's crazy to me. But that's all happened. And that has the effect of saying to people, don't be a participant in the system if you represent the wrong kinds of people. That's precisely the opposite. Remember, John Adams, the famous John Adams, president of the United States, the father of uh, John Quincy Adams, you know, one of the earliest uh, uh, leaders of the revolution. John Adams, he was president from 1797 until 1801. He himself represented the British shooters in the Boston Massacre. You, You got that right. John Adams was a lawyer. And he was at the time already, uh, you know, uh, anti the bullies from uh, from uh, England, but he represented those. And he there's there's famous uh, stories about accounting the discussion between Sam Adams and his cousin, John, John Adams, and talking about what uh, how could you do this and all. And the, the answer was that you expected the system to have real advocates even the second president of the United States, the guy who went on to become a second president of the United States after Washington, did that, engaged in that. And now we have a system where if you are engaging in support in, in defending people who might have unpopular opinions, I mean, the British, the Redcoats had shot people at the Boston Massacre and still Sam Ad- John Adams defended them. Due process means that the system has these basic checks, these basic balances, and the balance is struck. And the participants, you know, the Constitution and the rule of law are the sort of operating manual. The participants are we the people, but especially those that are called to be in the law. And when those people are politically motivated and they are overriding, their actions are overridden by politics or or uh, mental health issues, Trump derangement syndrome, it's distorting the whole system. And so you're going to hear these interviews over the coming months, especially probably three or four weeks, maybe maybe the next two months. I'm going to play these interviews on due process and how we must demand due process for our nation, in our nation, for all people, for all we the people. It's going to be interesting. All right. We'll take, we got to wrap it up. Thank you, uh, Ryan Haidt and, and uh, uh, Mason Mohan for uh, helping with this program. We'll be back tomorrow, everybody. It's Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. Talk to you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.